0: Greshi, the Communications Director at Fuji Organization, and this is Justice On Air. In this show, we bring you closer to discussions with human rights advocates in Malaysia working to bridge gaps in more ways than just one. How we got to launching a podcast is simple. We at Fuji identified information lacking and misrepresented about the humanitarian field that needs to be addressed starting with where we're based in Kuala Lumpur. Fuji is a nonprofit organization that champions equality and access with and by refugees that connect three core principles, education, enterprise, and empowerment. Now, as part of the Fuji team, as it is with NGOs worldwide, we're small and tight-knit. With the little time and resources that we have, There's only so much that can be done to assist hundreds of refugee families in Kuala Lumpur. But in this country alone, nonprofit organizations have long existed to seal social and environmental gaps in the face of immense political struggles. For a young Malaysia formed in just 1963, this is a country founded on revolution lined up with activists on the forefront up until this very moment. To kick off our series, I'd like to start with people that identify as women who are tenacious and unafraid to put their tools and privileges to good use. So we're calling our first season, Women Information. Yeah, I came up with that. And our first guest on the show is none other than Deborah Henry, co-founder of Fuji and former Miss Universe Malaysia in 2011. Hi, Deborah. Thanks for joining the first podcast episode with me today. Hi, Fatima. I'm really good. Super excited to be part of the first podcast. Of Fuji, too. Yeah, Justice on Air. Let's just backtrack a little bit. And for those that aren't fully aware of how you even began working in the space of activism for over 10 years now, what really ignited that spark in you exactly? You identified a huge difference in perception and in action. So what happened to you back then, like 10 plus years ago, that now you have created an NGO out of? I do really think it's about uh, human connection. I think at the end end of the day,
1: no matter who we are and what our lives look like, whether we're in big cities or small towns, um, wherever we are in the world, it's really about human connection. And we all want human connection. And for me, it was a very special encounter I had with a few refugee families in Malaysia about 10 years ago that essentially started. For me, it was a very simple premise that um, I come from a family where my mom's an educator, my sister's an educator, and to visit a family in Malaysia, um, sitting in their home and the children who were 11, 12 years old did not have access to school, could not read, could not write. The light in their eyes was gone. And to know that they're in my country, less than 20 minutes from our beautiful, you know, twin towers and they're sitting here and like, and to me, it just didn't match up. It was like, this is not right. Um, this is not okay. You know, they've had to flee a very difficult, dangerous country and situation to save their lives. And we're not giving them education. That's just, I mean, that's absurd. And so for me, it was, it was that point of, I remember walking out of their home that day and going, I'm going to do something about this. And and I think it, it, it is at the end of the day, that moment, right? It's that aha moment that we all have. It, it's the switch that flips within us. And it's different for different people. It's, it, you don't expect everyone to do the same thing, but in, to figure out something you're passionate about, something that you really feel very strongly about and to be able to like dedicate and commit your time and resources to that. And so it it really was that premise of every single child has the right to an education. And it's not just about the one child. We're all so interconnected. So when you take education away from a kid, you're taking it away from his community, from his family, from his country, from the world, because the future is our children, and You don't educate them, you're going to build more problems.
0: So what was exactly that specific moment in your life that you encountered? Was there a family that touched you, like, you know, that really touched you, that moved you, a story that you heard, like something that happened that you thought to yourself that, okay, you know, the time is now, you have to act now. And when that happened, were you even a little bit daunted by the idea of Mm -hmm. getting into the space of activism?
1: Sometimes you have to like, and I think a lot of people in the startup world talk about this, right? You can only plan so much. And at some point you've got to start, you've got to do it. Um, and for me it was, I, I mean, I, I studied political science. I was, I've always been very interested in this sector. Um, so it wasn't totally new to me, but I, I was searching and I was looking for something and I didn't know what that was. And so it was really this, it was, it was that encounter, that personal encounter meeting this, uh, family from Somalia. Um, and I just, I still know the family today. They still live in Malaysia and, uh, It was seeing these four siblings together in their home and realizing without if if they don't get if they don't get to school, then what's the point? You know, they were so shut down and cut off from the system. And, world. what life are they going to have? You know, what's what's the future look like for them? It's very bleak. So it was really that moment for me. I said, like, oh, my gosh, education is the most important thing. That, you know, food, water, and shelter, we always talk about that. Like, the basic needs for survival. Yeah, of course. I mean, if you don't have it, you're going to die. But a life in today's world without education, what's the difference? And so it really was that moment where my uh, university friend and I started giving the family tuition. And then six months later, we we sort of um, evolved and snowballed into starting a school with one of the community members, uh, Shafi. The rest of the community were like, hey, what about our kids? We want to send our kids to school, too. But there is nowhere to go and it was that very much that need that sparked the sort of the establishment of fuji school so it wasn't us coming and going hey we have the solution to everything it was really listening to to the people you're working with and so it was very much a joint effort doing it together and even 10 years later today um, fuji school is very much
0: that so you mentioned fuji school and for those that don't really know where fuji originated from why fuji What's that? What's exactly the story behind that name? Because personally, I only know the Fuji music band (laughs) from the US, but I don't really know exactly. Because when I came across it, I thought to myself, "Okay, I wonder what that stands for." So, personally, for you, what does that stand for, and what exactly are you trying to communicate using this name?
1: Yeah, so you, I think um, you've said it. it, The name is uh, inspired by the Fuji's and. You know, as you know, the some of the members were refugees, um, and I think I loved how they intertwined their personal journeys and their stories into their music, and and I think it's also recognizing that yes, while the 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 refugee title it's a label that we stick on so many people and so many people, and it almost becomes like they're victims of their situations. Um, it it does it is also part of your identity, what you go through in life. I think makes up who you are today for all of us no matter who we are right so i think for many of our students and the youth it is it is a part of them and i don't think it's all of them it's it's one part of who they may have been or may have what have they what they would have experienced so it's a, so fuji school we think it's fun and we, we it's a it's a play on words you know you go to our website and you look at the work we do we're not we're very positive we're happy we're not uh, looking for pity and victim victimization it's very much you know we're all empowered individuals and Everyone wants an opportunity to do well in this world. And we're all about that, giving the communities that we work with and people we work with the chance, the opportunity, um, access to, to have fun, to live life and to build a successful future.
0: So in the same vein, though, for the Fuji nonprofit organization that is now celebrating 10 years of its birth since, you know, when you came about it with your university friend, What were some of the challenges that you encountered? Like, were there some stumbling blocks that sort of like, you know, took you sort of off guard and you had to think to yourself, okay, I really need to find a way to learn how to run a nonprofit organization because... There are some. Um, actually, there are lots of issues in the space itself. It's not only funding, but it's also just the general lack of awareness of how nonprofit organizations are operating. And sometimes, because of all of these shortages, it really does like present to them like a challenge that's really hard to overcome just overnight. So, when you came across it, like, what were some of your immediate actions? Like, what were some of your immediate thoughts that you translated into actions?
1: We're a movement about social inclusion. Um, and we—it's not—we're not—we're not about charity, and we're not about dependence. We're about dignity, um, and inclusion, and, and that's what we—that's in a nutshell what we talk about. So it's—it's it's moving, and I think the whole nonprofit sector—it's moving to be to to operate in a little bit more of a business with a business mind, um, to move away from just handouts all the time and helping people. It's it's. It's ha- helping people up and giving them a hand up. And so um, I think that's a very key part of what we do. And because we are a nonprofit, you are having to fundraise. You are having to rely on corporate social responsibility. You're having to uh, you know rely on grant funds. So you are quite, in a way, reliant on outside money coming into your organization to sustain what you do. And I think that is a big challenge for many uh, nonprofits. I do think that we have to also, times are changing. We have to also change how we raise funds and how we show impact right how we talk about the impact we do and and i and i think in malaysia especially it's moving away from this mentality of like constantly chasing people for money to being a little bit more dynamic in how we do that and and i think for corporates i would encourage them to you know don't just hit and run you know it's stay in it for the long haul, commit two, three years of your time to work with respective non-profit that you, that you uh, connect with and work with them till they reach a point of sustainability, right? Because I think that's really important. So I think also trust building. I think initially working with a very marginalized community, you don't get the support from society, from different stakeholders. So you need to kind of prove yourself and you need to kind of Connect people to the to the challenge. I think when people understand what it when we talk about, you know, refugee children left out of the system, not having access to school when I've had so I brought so many visitors to the school. And when they see what we do, when they meet the children, when they meet the youth and the families and they go, I get it like what happens if I couldn't send my kids to school? What would I do? And so then it it resonates, it hits home, it's relatable. We can't exist in our little bubbles anymore. We need to recognize that. I think we're all very connected, and and you can't live thinking my life is perfect, my life is fine, I don't need help from anyone else. You know, you've got to be able to realize that if someone else is suffering and in a difficult situation, eventually it's going to affect your life. So I think it's recognizing that all all marginalized communities in this country need help. Um, I don't think there's a hierarchy of who to help first. I think it's, it's a matter of like sitting down and finding out workable plans and solutions for this.
0: So you mentioned a lot of key things in what you just said, whether it's talking about empathy or whether it's talking about like how it's, you know, it's necessary to connect with people and to build bridges, right? So let me just give you a quote from one of the human rights lawyers from Europe, Eric Paulson, who said in an interview with Free Malaysia Today that, quote, people are being conditioned to fear foreigners, so much so that they feel it is okay to discriminate against them. Now, a lot of us understand that the massive influx of refugees and asylum seekers to Malaysia in recent years is due to unlivable political conditions, whether it's in country like Somalia, Yemen, Syria, Myanmar. I think that's like the bigger, like the, I guess, the highest demographic of people here. So where do these feudalistic, these xenophobic um, ideologies stem from in Malaysia? For instance, if we were to make an equivalence in places like the US or the UK, we understand that there are other structural issues at play there. But over here in Malaysia, where there's already like a diverse fabric of people, we have like multi-races, we have indigenous people living on all over Malaysia. And yet there's still this sort of, um, like lack, I guess, of an understanding of empathy to get to know who these foreigners are. So, how did Fuji exactly break the sound barrier here? Um, well, we're trying. <laughs>
1: I'm not sure we've. I'm not sure what we've achieved, to be honest. Um, I mean, and that that's a good question. It's something I think about all the time. I mean, we're so mixed up um, as a as a people in in Malaysia. So many different ethnicities and backgrounds, and I mean. You one would think coming from such a multiracial, uh, multicultural nation that we would be really open um, to di- to diff- things that are different and not fear them, um, and yeah, for some reason I'm not sure why people tend to tend to fear and tend to to vil I think vilify you know what's different and, and they make you out to be bad and negative. And especially when we have such a large um, migrant population who have come here to all of our buildings in our construction industry. They they built so much of our country in the past few decades. You know, we couldn't have done it without them. And in so many different sectors, we rely on these communities. And so we really we know we really need to I think treat a lot people with a lot more respect than what we're doing unfortunately and also I do think that we need a very comprehensive holistic messaging that is being that that comes out of our, uh, our comes out from the leaders comes out from the corporate sector comes out from all different aspects of society especially our leadership that is all the same messaging that is all talking about inc- being inclusive messaging, messaging that is bringing us together, messaging that does not divide us. Um, I think we still we still operate in a little bit of a divide and divide and conquer mentality, and, and that's very dangerous. There are one hundred and seventy thousand uh, refugees in Malaysia. It is not. An insurmountable number. It is not a number that is so too big to manage. We really, if we are willing, can really find realistic solutions. And I definitely think brushing it under the rug is not something that that works. And another thing I always say to people is, put yourself in someone else's shoes. You know, what were to hap- What would happen if one day something's, you know, there was a bomb dropping on your house or there was fighting outside your gate? What would you do to save your family? And at the core of Every human being is our survival instinct. We all will do what it takes to survive. And wouldn't any Malaysian family do that, no matter who you are and where you live? You would do that to protect yourself and your family. And that is what that is. What every other person is doing who's a refugee. And so I really do think we have the resources. We have, we have what it takes to do it. But I, I really think it's the messaging that needs to go out there that is inclusive. And it's not just about the the foreigners in malaysia it's it's about malaysians themselves we when, when we need to accept ourselves first before we can even accept anyone else
0: and just for the um, like any kind of everyday Malaysian, a native Malaysian, can you name any representatives of the country that are doing something about it? Because we know that, for instance, as Fuji, as the nonprofit grassroots communities, we're doing, we're using more of a bottom-up approach. You know, we're not trying to exactly, you know, preach to people, but we're also trying to do it with the community, holding hands, joining forces with as many like-minded individuals as possible. But from the a policymaking, lawmaking perspective, are there any? examples Examples for Malaysians that don't know that are actually raising consciousness and raising, you know, all of these same issues that you are also grieving about that Malaysians or at least Malaysian governments sometimes fall short on. Um, I do think a lot of
1: our members of parliament are actually talking about it. I think I think this government recognizes that uh, ignoring it, sweeping it under the rug is not a solution. It's not viable anymore. It's been done for years and years and years. It, it hasn't changed any outcome. And so the time is now to really confronted head-on, find workable solutions and try things out. I think the, the Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development, I think they've been doing amazing work. They've been really like raging forward, um, looking at marginalized communities, looking at children, how to better serve the children in our country. And, and, and I think they're very committed to, to, to making changes. Um, and I think there are a bunch of other MPs as well, um, who are also very keen, and they're also saying the right thing. So I, I, I do think they're, it's slowly starting to get attention. Um, and recently, we, we, there were some panel discussions where we talked about, we, we, we referenced Turkey and said, look what Turkey's done. We have one of the largest refugee populations in their country. And you know they've been able to successfully integrate. They've they've been able to show positive um, development, growth in their economies. Um, they've been able to say that refugees were in their in some towns and cities have contributed to more job vacancies, higher employment, so opportunities. So. I think it's been positive. I think initially it does take a little bit of adjustment and there are kinks in the road, but I think you can actually successfully, as this, as the stats show, you can actually sort of integrate and include uh, newer populations into your towns and cities um, successfully. And I always talk about rights and responsibilities. For any communities, any people, it works hand in hand. Even citizens of a country, you have rights, but you also have responsibilities. And talking about these two hand in hand it tells people that yes, you're in Malaysia and you have all these rights, um, but that this is how Malaysia functions and these are responsibilities and this is how you can be a good, a good human being, a good citizen, a good uh, productive member of society.
0: I'm um, sure uh, there are people who are definitely interested to volunteer or at least help out Fuji. So what are some of the things that are in the wind for Fuji over the next few months? Like how can people get involved with Fuji, whether it's in school or with Fuji Law? Maybe you can also give a little bit of information about that and other projects that Fuji's up to.
1: Yeah. So Fuji essentially focuses on three pillars, education. Um, and for that, we have Fuji School and some other programs leading into tertiary we have enterprise and that's where we've launched our very own social enterprise two years ago. It's called Fuji La F U G E E L A H. A spin on the Malay slang. La Mm, (laughs) and, uh, and also the Fuji song Fuji La 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 La. Oh yeah. But I can't sing. So I'm not going to sing it. I actually
0: never noticed. Yeah.
1: So, um, and we make beautiful earrings and accessories and we partner up with different... Uh, we have collaborations with different companies. Last year, we had a collaboration with Uniqlo making t-shirts. Mm-hmm. So that is our social enterprise. And then finally, we have um, empowerment. So we w- run a few different workshops and programs for the uh, the wider refugee community and also marginalized communities in Malaysia to help them get on their feet, to help them learn skills, sharpen their skills and, and to really take take back control of their lives. We're always looking at smart Partnerships, so people, companies, um, institutions that we can work with, collaborate work with, to bring about the biggest impact and change. And also, I think each one of you can be a activist. I think in your own right, where you can talk about issues that matter, and you know, I think put the agenda out there that we want. You know, we want to be more inclusive, a more inclusive society. We want marginalized communities to be able to have access to more in our country and to be taken care of. And I think nobody no child should be deprived of going to school and i think if we can let people work they're able to contribute to our country to our economy and to and also it gives them the, we're giving them an opportunity to also give back to a nation that has opened their doors to them but we're also very excited this year as you said earlier fuji school celebrates 10 years this year we've been we've educated over 500 uh, refugee children and youth in the past 10 years and also impacted thousands and thousands of the uh, community individuals. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're very excited to launch our coffee table book. It's called You're In, Not Out. And it's it's basically a platform for students to express themselves creatively, artistically so we've got short stories we've got poems we've got drawings and diagrams and it's really a little window into the lives of our students their background their past their present what they what their dreams are what their hopes are for the future um and it's a a really beautifully uh, put together book and uh, we're very excited to launch it um yeah when we we're going to have it at different points of sale very excited to share the good news
0: all right. Now, Fuji is 10 years old, so don't forget to purchase your very first book, Celebrating Fuji's Amazing Accomplishments. Where can people actually follow Fuji?
1: On um, Online and offline?
0: Yeah, so uh, our website
1: is Fuji.org, uh, F-U-G-E-E, and our earrings is uh, Fujilah, L-A-H, dot com. And of course, for our book, we're going to be putting it up. It's not up right now, but it's going to be coming up very soon, um, and you can definitely access it on either of those websites. And our Instagram handle is fuji underscore org
0: all right and that's a wrap for our very first episode on justice on air with deborah henry thanks so much for listening and do subscribe to justice on air wherever you listen to your podcast we normally release on spotify first but apple Podcasts, google podcasts and everywhere else it usually comes within a few days time so don't miss out on that And do tune in to our next episode where we speak with a writer and advocate shedding light on mental health issues among children in Malaysia through fiction.